Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. To stem or not to stem? That is one of the biggest questions today in winemaking. And today we're going to explore this topic by visiting some new interviews and also by sifting through some past interviews. The stem and whole berry question usually becomes most relevant when discussing a few particular grape varieties, namely Pinot Noir and Syrah. Though the topic does extend to other grape varieties, today we'll focus mostly on those two. And to further clarify today's conversation, it's important to note that many destemmers these days can destem and leave up to 90% of the berries intact. So the real topic we're getting at is not really a binary one. It's a little more complicated. It's the choice of stems, no stems, or partial stems, fermented with berries, crushed berries, or a combination of whole and crushed berries. And if you make a quick logic chart, you'll see that there are nine possible combinations for a fermentation. Whole cluster with stems. Whole cluster with partial stems. Whole cluster with no stems. Part crushed with stems. Part crushed with part stems. Part crushed with no stems. Crushed with stems. Crushed with part stems. Or crushed with no stems. Now, if you splay those nine combinations on a linear spectrum, you'll have at one end whole cluster wines with all stems and all whole berries essentially just picking the bunches and putting them right into the fermenting vessel. And on the other end of the spectrum, you'll destem completely, throw away the stems, and put all crushed, destemmed berries into the tank. Winemakers will plug into this spectrum at different points, and this is really the heart of what we want to get at today. Why will a winemaker go to one part of the spectrum and not another? And there's no simple one-size-fits-all answer to this. So we're exploring a variety of reasonings from a variety of winemakers. When you ask winemakers what they do and why, we found that pretty much everyone has a different answer. And to be clear, we're looking into this to explore all possibilities, not to select a winning method or to promote one way of winemaking over another. This is really about exploring the pros and cons of all options and the plethora of ideologies that drives a winemaker's stem and berry choice. So let's begin at one end of this spectrum, and then we'll move towards the other. So first off, no stems, 
crushed berries. Henri Jaillet is generally regarded as the anchor of the D-Stem Crush Grape Camp. He died in 2006 and was most famous for his Pinot Noirs from the late 70s, 1980s, and 1990s. Jaillet wasn't just destemming. He actively supported an anti-stem stance and encouraged other winemakers to follow suit. Many did. Henri did not like stems at all. And uh, he was very frustrated with uh, some of uh, our peers who uh, use stem extensively, and uh, he didn't like the type. Um, nowadays, stems are very much in fashion, and so uh, it was not the case uh, in, in in the 90s. So you know, it's uh, the, the the debate between the two is really as old as red wine. And did he tell you? Um certain things that were important to him? You know, never having had the chance to meet him, I'm always curious. Of course, his, his teachings were, were extremely, um, extremely important, but uh, what was more important was the, uh, really the general philosophy of uh, the wine. He, uh, he liked very central wine. Uh, he also, um, on the viticulture side uh, of it, he was uh, quality-oriented. So I guess that when, uh, you know, a, a number of young vintners at the time who came and talked with him, uh, he told them, well, you must have quality in mind with your vineyards. That is, you must be reasonable in your vineyards. You must harvest when it's time and not because it's convenient. And so he, he had very basic uh, advices uh, uh, on, on that. In terms of winemaking, he had his uh, techniques, his canvas, and the the first year in 89, uh, we uh, did as instructed. But uh, I really, you know, I really fell in love immediately with the style of his wines. I, I had no need, I felt no urgency to, to look elsewhere. This, it, this was exactly what I wanted and uh, what I liked. Henri was, was really uh, somebody who was very, um, um, very sensitive to... Uh, the pleasure in the mouth, the brightness of the fruit, the texture, and he loved to eat. He loved uh, good eating, good restaurants. Uh, he had a kind of informal club with other uh, uh, vintners in uh, in France, and they 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 went and delivered their wines to uh, the big restaurants of France. Uh, you know, the Menot, uh, Blanc, uh, Trois and so on. So he really loved that aspect of uh, his job, and I think it tells uh, something about the style of his wine. The fact that he he thought that it uh, it should be very nice, elegant, a real pleasure to drink, go well with food, and um, I, I I asked no question on that. I just had. Yeah, that's exactly what I want to do. That was a little excerpt from Levy's interview with Jean-Nicolas Mayo from Mayo Camusé. Now let's see what Mark Vlasic has to say. He's the winemaker at St. Innocent in Oregon. He also believes in destemming. Everything that I've made uh, for Pinot Noir is is destemmed. What I'm trying to do is to make wines that taste like places. It's the Burgundy concept that terroir actually matters. If you're trying to do that as a winemaker, then that will taint your decisions. In Burgundy, you have old vines, which 
are much better at displaying terroir than the, what we have essentially in Oregon, which is relatively young plantings. And everybody knows that Pinot Noir, as the vines get older, is much more expressive. In Oregon, our sense of terroir is, is at a disadvantage because we don't have anything. And then when we start to get old vines, they'll die to flocks or we had to start all over again. So, um, so for me, being a terroirist, I, I want you to taste that place. And what I want is for the winemaking to show you what terroir is about. So what is terroir about? Well, it's about texture. It's about all those secondary flavors and, and aromas. So it's about the flowers. It's about the earth. It's about the compost. It's about the spice. It's about the mushrooms. It's about all of those things and how they interplay with the textures on your palate. If I do a lot of whole cluster, what do you do with whole cluster? Well, first of all, you have a lot of whole berry fermentation. So you have an intraberry fermentation. But all those flavors of terroir are on the outside of the berries. So you're doing the fermentation inside the berry. You're using a lot of stems, just soaking up a whole set of tannins and, and changing the acid profile and changing the alcohol profile. And you get that big kind of strawberry thing because that's what you get in Beaujolais. It's about intraberry fermentation, which brings out that really bright fruit thing. And now you're adding all the cedar from the stems. So all that cedar flavor. So you're essentially using a choice which, which adds a profile that has nothing to do with terroir. I'm not saying it covers up terroir. I mean, Dujac does a fantastic job of making wines. And, and I love those wines. And I love Steve Dorner's wines at Kristen, who always uses large percentages of old clusters. And I buy those wines because I love them. But for me, it is in the way of revealing what's different. To me, it's about capturing the things that tell that story most clearly. And so what I want is to, is to essentially crop the grapes not super low, which essentially gets them super ripe fast. I want a moderate crop level. I don't want a high, I don't want a low. It's like, you know what my dad used to always say, moderation in everything. And I think it's really true. A part of Mark's reasoning is that he believes that terroir is supremely in the skins. To him, the skins experience the vintage, the sun, the wind, and they can express it better than the inside of the berry. And that stems don't really have that kind of voice or individuality that grape berries and skins do. I'm not convinced that the stems from one vineyard taste that different from, than from another vineyard. I'm very convinced that the phenolics in the skin and the fact that they're responding to the light, you know, they're responding to the wind, they're responding to the temperature that the grapes are at. I've um, experimented with uh, stems. I've uh, done a um, one vintage a cuvee of uh, a small cuvee with uh, 80% stems, really uh, to know how to vinify that and what were the result in a meocamusia environment. And this is uh, definitely not my preferred uh, style. But I've um, experimented with it. I've done 30%. I've done you know the same cuvee, 30% versus zero. Uh, so we, we, I'm, I really, I really can can speak about what it is to uh, how it is to vinify what's what's the, the, the evolution thereafter and so on. Um, 
Now we introduce uh, with uh, great caution a small percentage of stems in some uh, vineyards, in some wines, generally no more than 10%. It's really, it really does some uh, wonders to um, bring a little bit tannins to the wine, so sometimes a little too much, that's why it's really maximum 10%, bringing a little bit more... Uh, a volume texture to uh, to the wines because you have more tannins so therefore you have also more, more softer tannins that combine with color stability of color at this uh, level it really is not um, you don't lose color you don't have the same kind of pale wine that you can end up with when you're using uh, 80% stems it, really, it works the reverse uh, it definitely adds some austerity and some uh, you know, fresh in the sense of mint eucalyptus uh, uh, aromatics. So in terms of uh, complexity, it's, it's a good tool. It's a good tool. But of course, at 5 or 10%, it doesn't really change our style. So it's a tool and definitely the higher proportion of stems is something I, uh, I respect, but it's not what I prefer. And the Jaillet formula of 100% de-stem plus a long, cold maceration, you're seeing a, a pushback against this, a little movement away from the de-stem ferments of the 80s and 90s and the long, cold macerations in Burgundy. Winemaker Sashi Mormon sees this as a result of clone, climate, and farming changes. The winemaking techniques have changed in Burgundy because the grapes have changed. And they don't need to punch down so much to get color. They're already getting color. And people forget Guillacad, who <laughs> promoted these 30, 60-day cold macerations, just to get color because they were struggling to get color. People were using enzymes to get color. And most vignerons today who, have, who are really good grape farmers, they would never tell you they have a problem with color anymore. But that would be quite strange to... For someone who was growing grapes in the 70s to hear that, when Hubert de Monti was doing all those punch downs, it was because he couldn't get enough color in his wine. You know, he wanted color. Are you saying that the difference is climate or that it's clones? I think it's, so it's all those things, right? It's, it's the climate has changed a little bit. Certainly the genetic material that people have planted in their vineyards is better and farming technique. And so there's been kind of a reverse between Pinot Noir grown in France and Pinot Noir grown in California, the farming has increased. The sophistication and the execution of farming has is on a whole other level today than it was 20 years ago. What that's done is that's allowed Burgundians, I think, to make wines that need less extraction in the fermentation so they can be more gentle. And I think in California, it's allowed us to harvest grapes earlier. M.W. Kate McIntyre works mostly with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay at Moraduk on Mornington Peninsula in Victoria, Australia. She makes some wines whole bunch and other wines 100% destemmed. So she's working with both methods, both ends of the spectrum. But she doesn't usually mix the methods during fermentation because to her, the choice to use whole cluster or to destem is a function of clone and terroir. Two of the vineyards she works with in particular, the Garden Vineyard and the Robinson Vineyard, are fermented using opposite methods and advertised as so. She uses whole bunch with the Garden Vineyard 
and she destems the Robinson Vineyard. We experiment with whole bunch fermentation on an ongoing basis. We tend to keep the two separate. So uh, we make a lot of different, a, lo- a lot of our different batches of fruit get made separately um, into separate batches of wine, and we only think about blending them right at the last at the last stage before bottling. So we do our blending trials quite late in the piece so that we can see how each of those different batches are working. So we will always, every year we'll trial a little different batch with whole whole cluster or whole bunch ferment. In your experience, why would you choose to do whole cluster? Why would you choose to destem, and why would you maybe choose to do a hmm. mixture? Okay, so the destemming de- I'll, I'll deal with first because that's probably um, the most uh, the, the 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 most recognised way of making Pinot today. Um, because we have destemmers uh, now that do the job for us, we don't have to do it by hand, so it's quite easy to to separate the grapes from the from the bunches, um, and it means that you get a more a more pure pure fruited character in the wine. Um, and with particularly with Pinot Noir, a lot of people uh, really love to see that pure um, cherry or berry fruit, um, some spice coming through, and and that's what you'll when you're uh, destemming. Then that's the flavour profile. Then you're going to get. It's also much easier to run a ferment when you've destemmed the grapes because. Um, the way we manage our ferments is that we will we'll destem to an uh, open vat fermenter and we will then manipulate the wine by moving the liquid around the skins. Um, the, the, temp- the, the, the tendency for grapes is while they're fermenting, because we're getting carbon dioxide, the, the skins get pushed up to the surface and so we want our juice to be in contact with our skins as much as possible to pull colour and tannin out of the skins into the wine and when you don't have stalks and whole bunches involved then it's easy to pump over or plunge the cap to mix it all up and get the juice and the and the skins all mixing up together so i've heard that that when you have the stems in mm. that it's easier to because you have to do less cap management because the bubbles can come up and you have less chance of an explosion but you're saying that it's easier yeah to do to not have the stems in there because you can pump over well you can pump over and you can uh i think if you're if you're not wanting to move the skins around much then you can get you can get um you can get compacted uh caps and then you can have sort of a an explosive character happening but it's not it's not the usual practice to not plunge the cap at all or to not move the cap around at all and uh and by by plunging or by opening up the cap and letting letting um the heat get out you can manage you can manage temperatures much more easily whereas with a whole bunch fermentation the way we do it it's in a static uh it's in a static fermenter we put the bunches straight into the fermenter and when we do it we either do it 100% destemmed or 100% whole bunch we don't do the lasagna um sort of uh, effect that some people like to do and I'll talk about why we don't do that in a minute but um, you can't move the fruit around it's once it's in there it's in there and the only way you can sort of manipulate a whole bunch ferment is by getting in and walking around on top of it to crush some of the some of the fruit and to release some of the juice and that's the case until it's quite a long way into its fermentation and you've 
you've smashed up enough of the fruit to be able to then give it a bit of a stir. But that takes sort of somewhere between usually 10 to 14 days to be able to start manipulating it. So you're right, the the stalks can um, create um, can create space for the gas to escape. So a whole bunch ferment usually takes a lot longer to get started and goes at a much slower pace, but you can sort of control how fast or slow it goes by how much you how much you walk on it because that's breaking that's breaking more berries, releasing more sugary juice into the system and giving the yeast more to play with. Do you ever press with press a whole bunch like in a presser? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So so a whole bunch but only only sort of towards the end of it. So when when we and a whole bunch ferment never goes all the way through in the fermentation vat. You press it off when it feels like it's slowing down. Um, but when we when we put it into the press, then there are still whole berries, there are still whole bunches in there, and the 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 press cycle is much slower and uh, and has to be much gentler to get the juice out because you've got all the stalks involved in there. And unlike when you do a whole bunch press with white wine. Um, Chardonnay, for example, the, the, the Pinot, um, that has already fermented is kind of squishier. So you can squash, squash it flatter and get more, more of the wine out of the whole bunch ferment once it's sort of mostly through its fermentation. Um, but to press it, to put it in a press early on will make it much harder to get the juice out of the berries because the skins resist. The, the gentle pressure of the press. Like the difference between squeezing like a fresh berry and like yeah. a red berry. Yeah. Um, so why don't you do the lasagna effect? We don't do the lasagna effect because for us um, the most important thing about whole bunch fermentation is what it does to the texture of the wine and we don't want um, to have excessively green stalky flavours and perfumes in our wine. Um, a lot of the French talk a lot about ripeness of of the stalks, and you know you taste the stalks and they taste ripe, and they you can look at them and they're lignified. It just doesn't happen in Australia, and I I don't really believe that it happens as much as they say that it does in France either. Because when as grapes ripen, you get lignification coming down towards the stalk, but certainly our experience is that they're always green when we pick them, and when you chew on them, they taste green. What we have discovered, though, is that when the pips of the grapes are ripe and they're brown and they're nutty and they're not astringent anymore, then that's when the stalks are ripe enough to do a good whole bunch fermentation. When you do the lasagna method, then you've got stalks soaking in liquid from the very beginning all the way through ferment. When you do 100% whole bunch ferment, then it's quite dry to start off with. The juice drops down to the bottom and there's not a lot of uh, contact with the stalks early on. We press off, as I said before, before the ferment's finished so we don't have a long post-fermentation maceration either because that's when if the if the stalks are in contact with the liquid, whether it be sugary juice or alcoholic wine, for too long, then a lot of bitter tannins and green tannins get pulled out of the stalks, and we're really trying to avoid that. So, just for my own understanding, it sounds like if the stalks are like a tea bag, yeah, the 
lasagna method is like a long soak. Yes. And then the whole cluster, 100%, you, it's just soaking there for a, a minute and you can control it better. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. It's and the and the 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 soak is more sort of at least partially alcohol rather than sugary juice. And 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 um, an aqueous solution will pull different characters out of stalk from a, an alcoholic solution. So with your garden in Robinson, yeah. Why are you choosing to whole cluster the one and pardon me, whole bunch the one and destem the other? Okay, so the the garden vineyard uh, wine we do 100% whole bunch fermentation because there's a couple of reasons. When we started trialing it, it uh, it really just seemed to work very very well for that parcel of fruit. It's a really lovely vineyard. It produces really quite ripe, um, savory fruit in the first instance, and by doing a whole a whole cluster or a whole bunch ferment you accentuate those characters. Um, it also has a richness of fruit that means that it can handle that extra savouriness and that extra tannin. The other reason is that we only have one clone of Pinot planted in the garden vineyard, and that's MV6. So if we destem it and make it the way we make the Robinson wine, it's a little four square. It's a little boring. So whole bunch fermentation brings extra complexity and depth to the wine that we can't get any other way. Um, the Robinson Vineyard, on the other hand, has always been the prettiest, most elegant uh, wine of our Pinot Noir collection. And uh, we have some 777 clone as well as MV6 clone in there. And we really love the, the prettiness and the, and the linear quality to the wine. And in a normal year, it doesn't stand up to whole bunch fermentation in the way the Garden Vineyard does. That said, in 2013, our Robinson Pinot Noir has about 20% whole bunch material in it because 2013 was a really rich ripe year. Um, we were doing experiments with whole bunch uh, fermentation with some new different parcels and one of those was from the Robinson Vineyard when we were looking at our blending trials before bottling. We played around with a little bit of whole bunch material and we really found that in that year, because it was such a ripe, rich, vibrant year, the whole bunch just gave it a little bit more structure and a little bit more depth and it made a better wine. Although some people believe that it's taken away the purity that the Robinson has always had. So it's a really difficult balance. It's a different, difficult decision to make to change the style. And if we change the style of a wine year in and year out, then some people will get really frustrated and other people will be fascinated by the journey. So, Levy sat down with Albert de Valine from DRC and asked him about his thoughts on the topic. Oftentimes, DRC is juxtaposed against the house style of Henri Jaillet as a domain that uses all whole cluster. But Albert notes that they use both methods and that what they decide to use is often a function of the vintage. If they get phenolic ripeness, they'll use stems. If there's no phenolic ripeness, they'll leave out the stems. The um, destemming or, or keeping the stems, destemming, is, is something, yes, it is uh, always a, a question. It's not so much a question for us uh, anymore. We experimented a number of times on, with uh, very small batches on 100% uh, stems, 0% uh, stems in a, in a sunny year, in a rainy year. And uh, it's uh, very obvious that in a sunny year, when you have a phenolic maturity uh, that is uh, very good, then you can uh, keep the stems. 
And I think the stems bring really a potential to the wine, especially a potential for aging. The If uh, you have a, a rainy year when the uh, maturity was reached at the very end, and uh, the, the the stems and the, uh, the skins that don't have a very complete phenolic maturity, uh, then it's uh, important to to take off some of the stems because, again, when you make experiments uh, in a year like this uh, with 100%, 0%, you see very easily that the, the, the answer is, is in the middle, more or less in the middle, uh, which makes me... Uh, say that uh, it's one of the rules we have in Burgundy that uh, the the solution of is most of the time in in the middle, never in the extremes, never in the extremes. Uh, so it's a it's something that we have uh, really uh, experimented enough to know more or less how much stems uh, to take off or. Uh, uh, to keep them uh, entirely. It's uh, it's it's not. Uh, I think, not a big problem. And uh, there, there, there is a sort of, there was a sort of a legend about the domain saying that uh, we don't distem, uh, which is uh, wrong. We 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 uh, don't distem when we think we don't have to distem, and we distem when uh, when we have when we think we have to. And I think to keep a good part of the stems, even in a difficult year, in a in a rainy year. Uh, with less maturity is something important because what is brought to the wine by this uh, by these uh, stems are um, precursors, as we say, the precursors of uh, the uh, very fine bouquets, fine perfumes that you have in the wine when it takes uh, time. These uh, what I call, anybody, other people can call them different, what I call rose petal character, very delicate, uh, the rose, f- fading rose petal, you know, very, very delicate character. And this, in my opinion, is uh, enhanced by keeping some of the stems. There's a growing consensus that green stems do not mean that stem inclusion would be bitter. More and more winemakers are talking about how, how the color of the stems doesn't really matter. A green stem can be bitter or sweet, and the picker should really taste those stems to see if they're palatable. But sometimes greenness is also associated with underripe stems, right? Like, right. you know, whole cluster. And you guys and he, Adam, use stems. So was that another concern? He was trying to get the stems ripe? Or? Th- that to me is more of a function of vigor and irrigation. So very vigorous vines. If you use a lot of whole bunches, you'll get a lot of greenness. Even if the bunches are large, even if the stems look really big, if the vineyard is not overly vigorous and isn't being watered too aggressively, I think that the stems will be much better. Obviously, you can still get a little bit of greenness, and I think that people like that because it gives freshness to the wine. The reality is the farming, I think, affects more that stem quality than anything else. Greg Harrington at Gramercy Cellars in Washington State likes to use some stems in his Syrah, and he says it's all about how they taste. Um, We always ferment 100% stems. I'm I'm a stem fanatic with Syrah. I think that stems really give you structure and elegance and kind of that 
thing that can be missing if you make wine that that don't have the stems. From everything we do is is pretty much thirty to one hundred percent, and we're quickly moving from fifty to one hundred percent. Really, yeah, one hundred percent stems. Yeah. So uh, our lanyap, which is made from red willow, is always one hundred percent. John Lewis, which is our reserve Syrah from Lake Colleen, is always one hundred percent. The greatest thing that I've realized about Syrah, which is kind of this wives' tale, like people say, well, you can't ferment Syrah on green stems. Um, I was sitting with Tegan from uh, Turley and Sandlands, obviously, maybe four or five years ago. He was tasting my Syrah and he said, what stem percentage do you put in here? And I said, this was about 40%, but you know, I didn't go any higher because they were totally green. But I said, you know, but I tasted them and they tasted good. And he was like, that's it. That's exactly the trick. He says, you have to taste them. I don't care if they're green. doesn't matter if they're brown. It's nothing to do with lignification. The stems are either bitter or they're sweet. And the more sweet they are, the more stems you can use. And, you know, for the past five, six years, every time I go to the Rhone or every time I talk to Syrah producers, they say, do you use green stems or lignified stems? And, and everyone who tells me they taste them says they, they ferment on green stems all the time. And we find the exact same thing. Huh. You know, in the rocks, the stems are, are almost always fully lignified. And we will never go above 50% in the rocks because rocks goes, you know, Syrah can be this really cool herbal, almost green pepper thing, like what you would find in Jamais. I think Jamais is like the perfect example of the flavor I'm trying to describe. And if you use too many, it goes to like this really bad canned green bean thing, like asparagus, bad asparagus kind of thing. And um, unfortunately, once it goes that way, you can't really dial it back. There's always going to be remnants of that flavor. And no matter how much you blend in there, if, if you're looking for it, it always kind of sticks out. We can be pretty renegade with Syrah usage. You know, we didn't, some people, they tell me, oh, we're, you know, playing with stems and they use 6% or 8%. I'm like, well, that's not a trial. Like throw 30% in there and see what happens. So we tend to try with 50% or 75% and, and see what happens. John Lockwood at Enfield Wines, he likes to use stems too. And he wants them for aromatics. The Syrah, I definitely start from the template of 100% whole cluster all the time, unless there's some staggering reason not to. And why do you do that? Because of Aaron, because I love the way those wines smell, D-Stem Syrah just doesn't bring that same aromatic complexity to the table for me personally. We did some custom crush at Fela, and I, there was an instance where a client was de-stemming some Syrah, and out of curiosity, I just walked over to the stem bin and grabbed a handful of stems and smelled them, and I was like, wow, that's what I want in my wine. All those aromatics that I love about Syrah, they're here in the stem bin and not over there in that grape bin. Now, if Chaillé is anchoring down the D-stem end of the spectrum, then at the other end you'll find Dujac. Domaine Dujac has sort of hung their hat on the idea of a whole cluster as a house style. And this was, in particular, the ideology of Jacques. Today, Jacques' son, Jeremy, he finds himself walking that unique tightrope between honoring the ethos of his domain and the ideas of his father, while at the same time making some slight changes towards the center. Here's what he has to say. With the Elevage at Dujac, <clears throat> I think the standard gloss is, is usually, well, Jacques was influenced by his friendship with Aubert Duvalet. He decided to do 100% stems and 100% new oak. And then... Uh, you came along and changed that. So that's the simplistic view. Mm -hmm. What really happened? What was the reality of the um, So yeah, my 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 father's um, when he likes something, he tends to um, yes, no. You know, it's, it's, it's not. It, 
But it's a little bit more nuanced than that. But yes, he, he was fairly binary. So coming from the outside and looking at Burgundy, there's a certain there's a certain idealism, and there is definitely never that view that you know, that gets carried through. Sometimes that Pinot Noir needs to be improved color wise by blending. And so there were some you know, there are some practices that were properly reprehensible. Some people got um, got sued and lost um, about and lost whole negotiations disappeared um, in the wake of some of these scandals of blending. And, um, and when he came from the outside, it was just his, some of the best wines he'd had had been unbelievably pale. He said they were just like, they were like rosé. <laughs> and I, I can imagine that Pinot Noir in the 30s, 40s uh, produced in those, that era, some of them were bound to be pretty light in color. He said that the perfume was incredible. And I never really cared about the color that much. I cared about what it smelled like and tasted like. So he went... <clears throat> That that led to, as a whole, very light extractions in the winery. The benchmark was Domaine de Conti, and um, and they were 100% whole cluster. And he thought, why would I not do the same? Uh, Gérard Potel was also a big whole cluster user. And um, it was the first thing he did. And and it worked. And people liked it. And it, and it, and, and it stood out. And there's, you know, I, I, when I was a kid, I would hear it. All the time, I hear, I still hear it, but less. I think, oh, the, your, the Dujac wines are the first ones I recognize blind in a lineup. There was a very strong house style, and I think that served him very well, and served us very well, and served the demand very well for a long time, because because rec- being recognizable is is ultimately a good thing. And if people like the style you're doing, and it's not everywhere else, then. And that's something good, but of course, our dream as a winemaker who's are dealing with great terroir is to to have our winemaking disappear um, behind the terroir. And I felt like our style was a little heavy-handed. Now, my father did destem heavily in some vintages, like '91. He destemmed heavily if the vintage conditions were he felt required it, then he would destem. 2000, which I think is a very Dujac, uh, our wines are, are very Dujac, as it were. They're very recognizable as such. That was almost everything was 100% destem. So it's, it, it doesn't rotate just around the whole cluster, uh, the whole cluster fermentation, but it's a large component. As I said, that's one of the big decisions you can take, but your cooperage is another big de- 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 decision you can make. Um, timing of mallow is another big one. And then there's a lot of small things. I wanted, as our, as our vines grew older, I felt they extracted more easily. I think that's I think that's definitely true. You know, the, the grapes we get are not the same as as the grapes we were getting in the '90s and the 2000s. With as the grape as the vines grow mature, everything extracts more easily. There's more tannin that's there. The wines are so we. I'm actually punching down much less than my father did. I think most people would consider the wines that we're making currently are more tannic than the wines we made in the '80s or '90s. And that's not a factor of being more extractive. That's a, it's it's a factor of the grapes being more extractable. And so I felt like I could really. Uh, have the terroir show better by just nuancing the winemaking a little bit. I did not want to do a revolution. The wines my father made were good, and there was no need to change everything. On the other hand, slight evolution was, was I felt, necessary or desirable. And so I feel like by destemming 10 15%, you already move away from the whole cluster character. You still have some, but it's not your defining feature. So Jaillet, Dujac, and Devalaine, they ignited this conversation decades ago. And you'll still find it reverberating throughout the diaspora. Here's Ronnie Sanders juxtaposing two stylistically different winemakers in a similar way in Australia. First of all, Tarish probably picks three to four weeks before Two Hands does. He picks really early. 
Michael's method of winemaking are shorter fermentations, warmer fermentations. He wants more extraction. With Taris, it's complete opposite. Taris likes real cool fermentations. Michael, at two hands, distems everything. Taris hardly distems anything. Taris's wines are on skins for long periods of time, between 30 and 60 days. So he's looking for completely different textures and aromatic profiles than what two hands would have. It's very interesting if you look at Taris's Syrah versus two hand Syrahs. Coming from the same vineyard, you could hardly recognize two as coming from the same place. But it's interesting because Terrace's wines are now the popular thing amongst the newer generation, right? No question. Yeah, no question. So it's funny to see that stylistic evolution take hold in the market and how actually it's kind of a continuity. One came from the other in a way. Yeah, and you, you know, you could really look at what happened with the Brasso before. The wines were low in alcohol. And sure, they didn't have the, the stem part of it. Uh, I think- Like before the mid-90s kind of thing? I think- as far as I know, the first people to use stems in Barossa wines may have been Taris or Fraser McKinley from Samiotti. And it's a fairly new thing. And with Taris, he worked three vintages that are Acadian. And if you were to ask Taris today, and Taris worked for some great winemakers, he worked at Two Hands for, for years. He worked for Thomas Brown at Outpost, helped make the Schrader wines, and worked at Arcadian, as well as he worked in Puglia. I think if you were to ask Taris, and I've heard him say this, I know what his answer would be. Who who would be your greatest influence on style as far as people that you worked with? It would be Joe Davis at Arcadian. Oh, that's interesting. Who also is known for lots of stems. On the consumer side of the wine business, in particular the sommelier side, in general, destemmed wines have a sort of predictable nature. The wines will taste very much like how they tasted a month or a year before, factoring in usual aging. But stemmed wines, in particular, stemmed wines with lots of whole cluster berry ferments, these tend to have a pretty aromatic character that can be mute one day and dancing the next, or just completely different from when you tasted the same wine from the same case the month before. So from a pairing or selling standpoint, stemmed wines with large percentages of whole cluster can be difficult to define and therefore trickier to sell and pair with dishes, while as the de-stemmed wines are more familiar when you reach for them. There's also this idea that a wine with more phenolic content will have greater ageability. This would make ferments with crushed berries, lots of skin phenolics, and possibly some stems better candidates for aging, though there are exceptions. Ultimately, stem and berry choice don't often stand alone. The decisions to use or not use stems and whole berries is usually linked to other concepts, such as soil types, vintage strength or weakness, vineyard vigor, stem ripeness, and of course, personal preference. And we want to consider the philosophical reasons to use either method. Most winemakers in the de-stem camp believe that terroir is transmitted primarily through the skins, that to get great Pinot or Syrah, those elements are going to show themselves in the skins. And so, to winemakers that see skins as the primary conduit of a wine's expression, a whole cluster ferment could be seen as muting the vintage or muting the skin's inputs from the site that year. This idea, though, is based on the assumption that the terroir inside of the berry juice is less important than the characters on the skins. And this philosophy forces you to wonder, when it comes to a plant, how should you fully appreciate its many facets of expression? And I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to this, but here's an attempt to unpack the question. 
In Sarah, for instance, it's really a code, a sequence of DNA. And the goal of wine drinking is to see that variety in a special way. And if the goal of winemaking is to see that variety in a special way, then what are the important parts of the plant that can pass along its most important elements to the wine? Of course, you can't make a wine without berries, but because berries are attached to stems, from the beginning of time, winemakers have had the option of including the stems or not. So how important is the expression of the stem to transmit the meaning of Syrah? And there are more parts to the question. Should the leaves, canes, or trunks be considered too when discussing the full genetic expression of the grape in a wine? For instance, it used to be common practice, in particular in Rioja, to bundle up canes and use them to filter the wine when it was transferred from the fermenters to barrels for aging. And at Elise's winery in Napa, winemaker Ray Corson sometimes dries his canes in bundles and will experiment with adding them to the next year's ferments. So to make a wine, you have to answer this question. When working with the grape plant, where is the locus of expression in the plant? Does mostly the berry skin have something to say? How important is the information in the juice, in the stem, in the canes and leaves? And you also have to answer the question, if I do not use the stems from this vintage, am I fully expressing this plant in this vintage? Am I capturing the complete expression of this plant by leaving out a part of this plant? Can this plant say what it fully means to say without the stems? If I used whole cluster, the question is similar. Can this plant say what it fully means to say without using those skins as a part of those first days of fermentation? The stem wholeberry question is really about looking at the plant and ultimately deciding which parts of it are important. To experience wine through the many possibilities and ways to approach these central decisions, it's one of the things that makes it so interesting to drink. Clive Coates writes a few paragraphs about stems in his book, Wines of Burgundy, and sums up the section with, The diversity of Burgundy is one of its many charms. It would be tragic if the winemaking became standardized. And he's right. I think ultimately we appreciate the differences. So even after all this exploration, we're right back where we started. To stem or not to stem? To crush or not to crush? That is the question. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.